0: Hey everybody and welcome to the latest and greatest episode of the greatest podcast in American history also known as dang dude what the heck happened to America or if you're listening on Spotify the making of modern America I've really got to cut down on the number of titles this podcast is getting my SEO is not in a good spot. Uh, today we're talking about the 1970s, uh, a little more in depth, right? We've already we've already touched on them a little bit uh, in the Vietnam episode, as well as some earlier podcasts. Today we'll really be focusing on the 70s, looking at deindustrialization, the rise of the right, uh, talking a lot about Nixon as well. Uh, so we're looking at four things here. Uh, one, we'll be looking at Nixon's presidency, looking at Watergate right at the end of his presidency. Then we'll talk about Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, two very forgetful presidents. And then we'll talk about the de- uh, deindustrialization as well. Built into all that is sort of the rise of the right in America. Coming off of, you know, the Red Scare, we see a little rise of conservatism in the US coming out of that post World War II period, coming into the post World War II period, and then we'll see it even rise further. So, some major questions here for this podcast episode. One, did Nixon do away with the New Deal order, right? Sort of the New Deal order had been in place since FDR started his New Deal. Uh, listen to those podcasts if you want to learn more about it. Um, but sort of the question is, did Nixon do away with it or continue it in some ways? Uh, we'll talk about that. How did Watergate change America's view of the government, right? This is a huge, huge, huge scandal, sort of hard to understate how important it was. And then how did the economy change in the 1970s? You know, we've seen a lot of economic changes throughout this little podcast series, and we'll look at sort of one more and how that went about. So for today's little biography, we're talking about Roger Stone, the most Batman villain of all uh, the characters we're looking at. Uh, On this podcast series, I highly suggest you Google image search Roger Stone. He thinks he's a natty dresser. He thinks he's a bit of a rake, uh, but he looks more like the penguin uh, than he does like a a model or a a Gucci model or whatever. Ralph Lauren model. Uh, So Roger Stone, you might have heard his name. He was in the news recently, but this man is still alive. Uh, as far as this podcast recording is concerned, Roger Stone began his political career while in college, which is true for a lot of people. And he worked for Nixon's uh, re-election campaign, so the second Nixon rec- uh, election. Uh, and this is sort of, he was known colloquially uh, and the part of my French as a rat fucker. Uh, that, was, that is sort of a, a political term there, um, which basically meant he ran... And participated in frowned upon, and in some cases illegal uh, campaign practices. Uh, he helped his his boss, uh, for example, helped cover up Watergate. Uh, Roger Stone himself pretended to be a member of the Young Socialist Alliance, donated to an anti Nixon campaign in that regard, sort of in that false under false pretenses. He also worked uh, on Reagan's 1980 campaign uh, and helped connect Reagan with Roy Cohn, a former Joseph McCarthy assistant who was also friendly with mob bosses. He also ended up working very closely with Trump. In Trump's election uh, in 2019, Roger Stone was uh, arrested on charges of witness tampering, obstruction, and making false statements. Uh, he's convicted on all seven accounts, but Trump commuted his sentence and then pardoned him. So it's sort of an example of just a guy who was around in the 70s doing some political stuff for some very skeevy guys, uh, and is still around today. So the 1970s in general were a time of increased radicalization for many people. Uh, this includes conservatives, uh, minority groups, the left in general. Uh, you see huge amounts of distrust uh, in the government, especially after Watergate, right? You you just see rising and rising and rising levels of distrust in the government. People not sort of believing the government anymore or wondering what it's even there for. The post-war economic boom, right? Remember after World War II, the U.S. had seen this massive growth in its economy, sort of a golden age uh, For workers all around the United States, uh, but that boom ended quite sort of suddenly in 1973, sending shocks uh, throughout the U.S. that are still with us today. Right, we're still seeing the effects of that economic. Um, we're still seeing the effects of that economic crash today. Uh, the right, the sort of the conservative political right, was able to capitalize on this failure uh, of the post-war economic boom, the end of the post-war economic boom uh, by the end of the 1970s, uh, sort of reshaping American politics for the next several decades, something we're also still dealing with. Ah, so President Nixon, right? Earlier, in a couple podcasts ago, we talked about Nixon sort of making his name as this cold warrior. The Alger Hiss trial, that's really where he got, he came to prominence, um, right? The national attention with this Alger Hiss case. Uh, He served as Eisenhower's vice president, uh, but then narrowly lost uh, to Kennedy in the 1960 election, right? Some people blaming that on uh, Kennedy's ability to look good on TV, while Nixon looked a bit like a schlub. Uh, But after LBJ dropped out of the race in 1968, Nixon ran again uh, for the president and handily beat out both Herbert Humphrey, Hubert Humphrey, sorry, and George Wallace. George Wallace running on this sort of segregationist platform in the South, uh, and Humphrey running as the Democrat. Nixon ran as a Republican. Nixon, uh, for Nixon for obvious reasons, isn't remembered particularly well by either the Democrats or the Republicans. You won't get many Republicans saying that they fondly remember Nixon, and you won't get any Democrats saying they remember Nixon, sort of political poison. Uh, but at the time, he was tremendously, tremendously Popular, especially pre Watergate. He was a savvy sort of political operator, uh, also had a huge ego, uh, no qualms about breaking the law. Those last two things would really be his downfall. He sort of also had this sort of long simmering uh, resentment for the Democratic establishment. He thought they were out to get him. This sort of paranoia tied with his ego and his, you know. Ability to – his his willingness to break the law uh, would end up in Watergate, right? Um, But sort of Nixon as a president did a lot of things that people don't particularly associate with him that they might think are good, right? And so we'll talk about – first we're going to talk about his foreign policy. Then we'll talk about his domestic policy. Uh, Nixon largely is known for his foreign policy. Uh, That's where a lot of his popularity, whatever remains of it, uh, comes from, especially at the time, sort of very popular for a lot of this. He put forward his Vietnamization plan to end the Vietnam War, right? This Vietnamization plan took American troops out of Vietnam and quelled a lot of those anti-Vietnam War protests happening in the United States, right? So very sort of successful that way, still fighting the Vietnam War, still spending a lot of money on the Vietnam War. But because he, you know, got, got, quote-unquote, got the boys home, he became a much more popular president. Of course, you know, at the same time that he was, bringing American soldiers home, he was also increasing the bombing and troop numbers in places like Cambodia and Laos, right? So sort of these secret illegal things that he was doing behind the backs of the American voters, keeping that secret from people. So this policy, of course, caused the deaths of thousands more Vietnamese people, as well as many Cambodians and uh, people living in Laos as well, right? So, might have been popular in America, but very much not popular abroad. Many still saw the Vietnam War as a victory for Nixon, despite uh, Vietnam becoming communist almost immediately as soon as American troops left, right? They saw him getting out in the way that he did as being sort of a success. So, he's able to spin that. You also see Nixon sort of go into China, right? That's another place where he's really known for his uh, sort of Cold War policies. Uh, You see... China, you know, had become a communist country and sort of immediately uh, began to ally with the USSR as the only other major communist country at the time, right? Uh, But those relationships started to split and fracture in the 60s and 70s. The two countries were sort of at odds over how communism Uh, Would expand or should expand into Asia, right? Uh, And Nixon sort of saw that and sought to take advantage of that sort of split, right? Hoping to break these two countries, break up relations between them. And so for the first time since their communist revolution, uh, Nixon began sort of official talks with China. For a long time, uh, the U.S. had refused to sort of acknowledge the existence of communist China and, you know, its various international political dealings. But uh, Nixon helped normalize those relationships. One of the first ways he did that was to send ping pong players to China uh, to compete in international events in 1971, right? Sort of called ping pong diplomacy. Sort of, you know, you if you look at, I believe they talk about that enforced Gump, Uh, Forrest Gump takes part of that. Uh, But that was a very real event. Also in 1971, Nixon traveled to China and met with Mao and traveled across the country for the first time, sort of a very high watermark event for a president. No president had ever really traveled across China before in an official capacity. Uh, At sort of the point of agreement, they came Two with China was that uh, the Soviet Union was that the Soviet Union should not be allowed to expand into China into Asia, right? Uh, Asia wanted to expand itself there, uh, but the U.S. sort of came to an agreement with it that the Soviet Union should not be doing that expanding. It wasn't just China that Nixon reached out to in his foreign policy and foreign diplomacy. He also reached out to the Soviets as well, specifically Leonid Brezhnev who was the Soviet premier at the time. They started talking about uh, reductions in uh, the arms race, specifically in nuclear arms, right? If you remember, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union immediately began ramping up production of nuclear and then hydrogen bombs to incredible, incredible levels until they had massive, massive stockpiles enough to destroy the world several times over. Uh, Right after his visit to China, or pretty soon after, Nixon went to Moscow, Uh, to sort of increase some diplomacy there, right? He agreed, while he was in Moscow, he agreed to sell American wheat to the Soviets uh, to give them some food, to open up sort of trade relations with the Soviets. Uh, They also began at that meeting to negotiate what would eventually become SALT or the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks. Uh, SALT was signed in 1972, a year after the beginnings of ping-pong diplomacy, the beginnings of the, the wheat talks. Uh, And SALT froze the number of long-range missiles and required old missiles to be destroyed before new ones were built, right? So it didn't do away with the arms race, but it sort of allowed for some reductions in intentions there. This sort of softer approach, right, to the Cold War after the really hard-line stances by LBJ and by Kennedy uh, was organized and coordinated by this guy, Henry Kissinger. You've probably heard of him. Also, still somehow amazingly alive uh, as of the writing of this. This is called often this this plan and approach by Kissinger. is called detente. Uh, of course, Kissinger also planned the secret bombings of Cambodia during the, the Vietnam War, as well as the ones in Laos, Uh, But Kissinger became a massive, massive presence uh, in American politics around this time, eventually becoming the Secretary of State under Nixon. I'll just read this uh, quote about him. This is from Anthony Bourdain. Uh, He says, Once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You will never again be able to open a newspaper and and read about the treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you will never understand why he's not sitting at, in the dock at the Hague next to Milosevic. That's from Anthony Bourdain. Uh, so clearly Kissinger, beloved by a lot of the sort of American diplomatic core, the the... the Heads of state, but hated by a lot of actual people on the ground, especially in Southeast Asia and in Latin America as well, where he did some horrible, horrible things uh, to millions of people. This detente policy, right, that they were applying to China and Soviet Union uh, that only got applied to the Soviet Union and China on uh, Latin America, uh, Nixon and Kissinger, as along with the CIA, continued uh, to sort of plot coups and to stop communist revolutions from happening, to stop even not even communist revolutions, but just sort of uh, more leftist guys from taking power. And they continued in their place to support brutal dictators. Uh, In the name of this sort of uh, Cold War. Um, In the 60s and 70s, uh, the U.S., uh, supported by Nixon, Kissinger, and the CIA, intervened in Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Paraguay, and others, right? So a bunch of countries completely sort of overruled the democratic will of the people uh, and destroyed uh, the economies and, and lives of many of people in those countries. One of the worst cases uh, was in Chile, the Chilean coup. Uh, this is one of the sort of the worst, most awful cases of CIA interference. Um, U.S. special forces helped General Augusto Pinochet overthrow the democratically elected leftist uh, leader Salvador Allende Allende in 1973. Allende wasn't even really sort of a full out socialist or communist, had some some leftist policies putting in place uh, that helped give peasants more power uh, and some more money and land. But um, the CIA interfered with that after Pinochet was put into power. Uh, Pinochet started a massive campaign of repression with the support of the U.S., murdering native Chileans across the country. Uh, This coup uh, was supported by magazines like The Economist. And University of Chicago economists uh, were brought in by Pinochet to transform the economy. They were called the Chicago Boys. Their policies created massive amounts of poverty in Chile. Most of, uh, most of that poverty going on to the indigenous populations who had been supported earlier by Allende. Uh, the, the Pinochet and his lackeys got really rich. Uh, and American companies got really rich. Uh, but the people of Chile were, were destroyed by this coup. The CIA, also very active in Africa during this time in the 1970s, Uh, they tolerated and supported and in more than one case supported apartheid in South Africa throughout Nixon's time in office. Uh, Apartheid, apartheid, of course, that awful uh, racist system of segregation and just outright violence uh, that existed in uh, South Africa at the time, uh, placing uh, Europeans, white Europeans above the rest of the populace uh, and sort of completely uh, ruining the lives of many uh, black South Africans. Uh, much, uh, they provided aid to the uh, UNITA, uh, an anti-communist group fighting in, in Angola during the Angolan Civil War, uh, and much of the CIA's work in Africa was, due f- was through funding fake NGOs. So NGOs, non-governmental organizations, you know, supposed to, we know... Today, when you think of NGO, you probably think of Doctors Without Borders, um, you know, vaccinations, things like that. The CIA funded fake NGOs that were supposed to be giving vaccines, but were instead um, doing anti-communist work. In Africa, uh, Nixon also had domestic policies that he was doing as well during this time. Nixon, very much a Republican, but did not follow that sort of classic Republican line of slashing taxes and slashing government programs. He actually started a few sort of transformative programs and catch, uh, kept much of the New Deal social safety net in place, right? He didn't come out and slash. Uh, You know, Medicare or anything like that Or Social Security Uh, But he also sort of resisted massive changes, right? He didn't want to do another new deal Uh, Most of the money for the programs that he put in place as well Was controlled at the local, not the national level, right? Meaning that a lot of those monies were distributed in very unequal ways uh, Or given to people who might not necessarily use them Uh, for the way they were intended. Uh, But this made him very popular with a mass amount of voters, uh, but not with sort of the more established politicians, because he tried to circumvent, because he circumvented going through that. So what were some of these programs that he created? In 1970, Nixon signed the National Environmental Policy Act and created the Environmental Protection Agency in that same year. Uh, right to so these big environmental organizations still with us today. Also, supported the creation of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, known as OSHA, another huge government organization, and doubled the budgets of the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. Also, oddly enough, became the first president to institute affirmative action policies. There's also sort of a plan to perhaps institute universal pre-K, which would have been really sort of fundamentally altering to the U.S., uh, but didn't go through with it. Uh, However, right, as I said, a lot of the money for these programs was put into the hands of local governments. Uh, So their effects were not as radical and widespread as they might have been. The EPA, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency, had few, if any, powers to actually regulate the environmental standards that it set. So, you know, he created this thing, but really made it pretty toothless though it did set up uh, the ability for later presidents to give it teeth, but that necessarily wasn't his, why he created it. Uh, the extra NEH and A funding that I mentioned uh, was distributed very unevenly. Most of it went to white artists and Midwestern museums and not sort of more diverse urban centers, um, but sort of that funding was there, right? So doing a lot of these things, freeing, Sort of political savvy moves, right? That he can point to the Democrats and be like, hey, I I doubled, you know, funding for the NEH, NEA, I created the EPA, and then go to the Republicans and be like, well, you know, look, I made these things, but really, what are they actually going to do, right? So a very politically savvy move. Uh, but this sort of all started to uh, become undone because of Watergate. Much of Nixon's sort of dem- domestic program uh, was very stymied because of Watergate. Watergate, of course, was, and and depending on who you ask, perhaps still is, the biggest presidential scandal in the United States. Uh, that attempted coup on January 6th is really its only competition. Uh, Watergate was sort of unnecessary, right? That's sort of the, the very uh, dark comedy in there. Nixon was hugely popular during the second election, won by a landslide, didn't need to be spying, but sort of his paranoia led him to, to take drastic measures. So let's talk a little about Watergate. Uh, Watergate started when five men were arrested trying to break into the offices of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. Watergate, of course, named for that hotel. Uh, The time of the arrest, uh, they knew the people who were arresting the men knew that one of the men arrested worked for the committee to reelect the president. Uh, if you look at that acronym, it's CREEP, which is pretty funny. Um, this news came out sort of almost immediately, but did not lead to any scandal. Nixon won the election in a landslide. If you look at those maps, sort of, he was just boom, 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 wanting, winning, wanting. People loved Nixon. But print journalists began investigating this report, right, that one of the people arrested worked for the president's re-election campaign, Uh, They became interested in it after being given information by a source uh, nicknamed Deep Throat. Uh, Deep Throat uh, later to be revealed uh, as Mark Felt, who was the number two guy at the FBI. Felt also sort of went through some stuff during Watergate, which we'll talk about a little later later. Uh, but was also eventually convicted of violating the rights of the Weathermen, who we talked about previously. Uh, the Reagan pardoned him for that. So getting getting this information from Deep Throat, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post uh started investigating this. Later, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein later played by Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman and all the president's men. Uh, but in the in the in the in their investigation, they discovered that the orders for the break-in had come from senior White House officials. And as a result of this being published and this was being released to the public, the Senate convened hearings about this. Uh, these hearings were nationally televised. Before the television hearings, even with the news coming out in the Washington Post, Nixon still had huge amounts of popular support. But by the time that these uh, televised hearings were over, his ratings were in the dumps. Uh, Many Americans had become convinced that he himself had ordered the break-ins, even though the hearings never fully revealed if Nixon had actually ordered the break-ins himself. They did reveal that he was spying illegally on other Americans and his own staff. Uh, He had hidden microphones placed throughout the Oval Office and the White House uh, and would listen back to those tapes, right? Uh, So they also sort of revealed to the public, these hearings, how much of sort of politics and politicking was really much about trading favors, right? It wasn't about, you know, standing up for what was right, doing what you believed in. It was sort of saying, you know, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Nixon was also caught on tape saying horribly offensive things about many minority uh, groups, uh, including African-Americans, including Jewish people. Just awful, awful things uh, caught on these tapes, Nixon tried to bar those tapes from the investigation, uh, citing executive privilege. Uh, He also fired the special investigator, uh, which prompted sort of more resignations from his staff. The Supreme Court actually eventually made Nixon turn the tapes over, saying executive privilege did not Uh, Come into play here. (laughs) During all this, to make matters even worse, Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, uh, famously a character on Futurama, uh, admitted to tax evasion and bribery uh, and resigned as a result. Uh, Gerald Ford, uh, the Republican leader of the House, replaced Spiro Agnew as the vice president. Before he could be impeached, right, Nixon never, famously never uh, actually impeached. Nixon resigned on August 9th, 1974. As a result of that, Gerald Ford became president uh, and immediately pardoned Nixon. Despite it being clear that Nixon was doing some awful, awful things, he sort of, his uh, excuse was that he said that, you know, they needed to move on. Uh, But there... Nixon getting out of office didn't mean everything was over, right? There is some, still some massive fallout from Watergate. Watergate really only further eroded people's trust in the government, right? The lies of Vietnam, you know, the My Lai Massacre, Uh, And sort of people being convinced that we were going to win the war right away when that obviously wasn't true. And then Watergate, as well as sort of, you know, the failures of the U.S. to do anything about the civil rights movement uh, and to to make it a a good place for people to live, um, really changed the way many people thought about the role of the president and about the role of the government in general. While many people, uh, Americans, uh, had been distrustful of the government prior to Watergate, right, we've talked a lot about that. Even more people became convinced. Even more people became convinced of that fact after Watergate, right? Sort of this sort of massive collision. Of all these people really distrusting the government. You also you see some changes in the culture, right? Watergate and the early release of something called the Pentagon Papers. Uh, which revealed a lot of illegal activities done by the government, inspired a number of films that came to be known as as paranoia thrillers. Most famous of these is All the President's Men, which was a dramatization of Watergate that I talked about. You also get Clute. Parallax View, The Conversation, and Three Days of the Condor, sort of all these films really gave voice to new fears of corrupt government agents, illegal spying, all this stuff that are being leaked into the mainstream. I highly recommend watching some of these movies. They're really great. So in addition to the the political turmoil of Watergate, uh, the country was also sort of experiencing one of the greatest, worst economic downturns since the Great Depression, Right. Sort of another economic downturn uh, and president, the presidents after Nixon, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter did basically nothing, little to nothing to to alleviate any of these problems. The Vietnam War, right, was very, very expensive. LBJ's Great Society programs are very expensive, uh, but both LBJ and Nixon refused to raise taxes to pay for them. Uh, You also see the economies of Europe and Japan were rebounding from World War II. And so U.S. manufacturing saw increased competition for the first time in decades. And if you remember back to the World War I podcast, right, that's sort of a pretty similar thing. Uh, You know, the U.S. manufacturing saw a huge boost after World War I. But then once the economies of Europe rebounded, they saw massive increased competitions and went through another uh, massive downturn, you sort of see a similar thing happening here. in uh, Nixon's first term, inflation started to rise as the U.S. began borrowing money to pay for the Vietnam War, uh, and Nixon only made it made that inflation worse with his first attempts to slow it. Uh, in 1971, he instituted a wage and price freeze, uh, which was the first time that had been done in peacetime. He also began to take on federal deficits and ended the gold standard for once in for all, uh, U.S. dollars now backed not by gold or back, not backed by silver, but backed by, quote, the full faith and trust in the U.S. government. Uh, this reversed the direction of the economy in the short term, helping his election campaign. But the problems weren't really fixed. Uh, these inflation problems compounded by an oil embargo as well. Uh, The U.S. had helped Israel win multiple wars against other countries in the Middle East since Israel was first established in 1948. But in 1973, after the Yom Kippur War, OPEC, which was this sort of consortium of oil-rich countries, placed an embargo on oil sales to the U.S. as a fallout of that war. Uh, Oil prices in the U.S. quadrupled and gas became very scarce. You see these sort of lines outside of gas stations and that car culture we talked about that blew up first in the 1920s and then later in the 1940s and 1950s uh, had made the U.S. so reliant on gas and oil that other alternative sources of Other alternative sources of fuel were not easily available, and people had based their lives around their ability to drive their cars everywhere, right? So you see people in the suburbs not being able to get to their jobs quickly. Our train infrastructure was really bad. Public transit was really bad for a lot of people, and so it was a huge, huge problem for the U.S. Uh, The oil embargo didn't just increase gas prices or heating prices. It also made it really expensive to to make other goods and to ship them as well right lots of goods rely on petroleum at some point in their production process companies also began firing workers as a result of this or just not hiring new ones right because they couldn't keep up with these new oil prices uh, and this created something called stagflation, right? You get a combo of inflation and a stagnant job market, and that became called stagflation. Getting into a little economics here, so bear with me. Uh, stagflation is notoriously difficult for the federal government to fight. Uh, Most of the federal government's economic tools are based around slowing growth or boosting growth, right? so decreasing inflation or increasing inflation. They don't really have that much they can do or are willing to do to fight stagflation. And the U.S. economy would sort of stay terrible throughout the 1970s. They didn't really come up with a solution to this. On top of all this, right, top of this economic downturn, on top of the oil embargo, the U.S. is also going through something called deindustrialization. While the heights of deindustrialization would come later in the 80s and 90s, uh, the process would start in the 1970s. You see industrial manufacturers begin to move their factories uh, south, right? A lot of the industrial center of the U.S. had been in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana. Uh, and they began to move south or out of the country entirely. These manufacturers, the companies, wanted to take advantage of lower wages in the south, weaker labor laws in the south, uh, and looser environmental regulations in other countries, right? This, you know, it made a lot of money for the managers and the owners of those companies, but it left millions of Americans without those sort of good-paying middle-class jobs that had really made uh this 50s and 60s would be a great time for workers in the United States. Uh, a factory closing could destroy an entire town, right? This wasn't just about, you know, 20 or 30 people losing their jobs, but entire towns uh, losing out on sort of the industry that had kept them there. Many of these sort of former industrial former industrial centers like Cincinnati, Cleveland, or Detroit became known as Rust Belt Towns. You see some of these uh, cities coming back in recent years, like Cleveland or Detroit in some ways, but they're sort of very much shells, hollow centers of what they used to be because of this sort of deindustrializing, uh, this massive sort of corporate movement uh, that lost millions, that destroyed millions of lives, right? If you know, you listen to Bruce Springsteen, a lot of his songs are about that. You also see the decline of cities, right? We talked about the growth of the suburbs in the in the fifties and sixties as a result of the GI Bill and other racist attitudes towards cities. That only grows in the seventies. Uh, stagflation, the growing loss of urban manufacturing jobs, right? Uh, Chicago used to have a lot of urban manufacturing stuff that went away during the seventies and uh, the eighties as well. And the growth of the suburbs you leads to massive sort of urban population loss. And it's not just people moving out of cities. When people move out of the cities, you also see decreases in tax revenue. Uh, For example, in the 70s, uh, more than 1 million people left New York. uh, And basically, New York was at the brink of bankruptcy because of this, the biggest city in the United States. Similar things are happening in Chicago and other sort of upper Midwest and East Coast cities. These funding losses, which are mostly driven by white middle class moving out, led to decreases in social services funding, job losses, as well as increased sort of crime rates. Right. People had to turn to alternative alternative sources of money when there were no jobs available after sort of. President Ford, Gerald Ford, was president during all of this, right, coming in after Nixon. He was the first president to never be elected as either president or vice president, right, because he came in after Agnew uh, resigned. And he was pretty ineffectual, didn't really do anything, uh, the butt of a lot of jokes uh, on SNL. Uh, He passed sort of a large tax cut to try and invigorate the economy, but it didn't work. Vetoed a lot of bills from Congress, but his veto was often overridden. Uh, saw a couple minor successes in foreign policy, like he laid the groundwork for SALT II, another arms reduction treaty, uh, and some Middle East peace talks, uh, sort of Camp David accords, but was barely—was was nominated, despite sort of not being able to do anything, was nominated to run as a Republican uh, candidate in 1976, barely beating out Ronald Reagan. Uh, he lost in that election to Jimmy Carter— Uh, Jimmy Carter had sort of a, a distinguished career after his presidency. That's mostly what he's known for was an effectual, if not bad president, uh, prior to his election was a little known sort of one term Georgia governor. Basically why he won was he sort of struck people as being honest, uh, which was a refreshing change to a lot of people after Watergate. And he beat out Ford for the presidency. Uh, he, but like Ford, a very sort of not a good president. Uh, For his domestic policy, he tried to create sort of new domestic jobs programs, but even after the announcement of this program, uh, sort of even just the announcement of this program increased inflation, right? So after that, he only sort of looked to small changes, but none of them really captured the public's imagination or got people on his side. Uh, The continued oil crisis forced Many elementary and high schools to close in 1977 due to a lack of heat, right? They couldn't afford to keep schools heated, uh, which is just sort of an awful, awful thing. Uh, Carter tried to raise taxes to find alternative fuel sources, but couldn't pass anything through Congress. Uh, Nuclear power wasn't really considered to be an option after a meltdown at Three Mile Island in 1979. Carter did a little better, but not much with his foreign policy. He called for ending apartheid in South Africa, uh, which was a somewhat refreshing change. Uh, he gave uh, began the process of giving up control of the Panama Canal, though uh, the U.S. wouldn't formally cede control until the 90s, uh, gave sort of day-to-day administration can, administrative control of the Panama Canal uh, in the 70s. He also added human rights considerations as a factor in U.S. aid, though this was sort of a little rich, a little ironic considering what the CIA was doing across the world at the time. Also saw the Camp David Accords in 1978, uh, sort of peace treaty talks between Egypt and Israel. But this was sort of all overshadowed by the Iranian hostage crisis, which happened uh, during during Carter's uh, campaign uh, for re-election. Uh, members of an Iranian student group that supported Ayatollah Khomeini took 52 American diplomats and citizens hostage at the U.S. Em- embassy in Tehran for 444 days. Uh, Part of the Iranian revolution, which overthrew the U.S.-backed Shah Reza. If you remember from earlier, Operation Ajax, right, the U.S. had come in and and destroyed the democratically elected left-leaning leader of Iran, uh, replaced them with sort of this hardline guy, uh, and then sort of an Iranian revolution overthrew him. Uh, and this sort of hostage crisis, these, the, the 52 American diplomats and citizens remained uh, hostages until January 20th, 1981, uh, which was a major factor in Carter's loss to Reagan in the 1980 election. So some conclusions here. Uh, the 1970s saw the end of the post-war economic boom. Neither Nixon, Ford, or Carter could figure out a way to an manage that sort of economic downfall. Watergate only deepened the political, cultural, and social divides in the United States, increasing distrust in federal government, and sort of paving the way for the rise of the right. Uh, so that's it for today, uh, and have a great rest of your day.